1: Good morning, hunters and fishermen. Fishermen? Well, maybe not so much of that. But this is another episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcasts and questions and answers. Uh, The team has come up with some pop quiz questions for me to try to answer. And I want to thank everyone who sent in their questions. This one is from Michael. Michael asks... Well, first of all he states, Ron, I really enjoy your videos. Bingo, I already like Michael. <laughs> oh oh, the complaint I have lately is my local sporting goods store in Washington, the state, has finally gotten in some ammunition. Yay, let's hear it from Washington. <laughs> but it's mostly NATO rounds. Oh gosh, you're looking at a three oh eight Winchester here for <laughs> There are barely any reloading components at all. Oh, this is getting bad. In fact, a person could carry all the bullets that they have on the shelf in two hands and forget about (laughs) gunpowder. This is sad. I understand if you follow the money, the NATO rounds are what bring in the most customers. But it's disturbing to me that us old reloaders are getting pushed to the sidelines. I realize that a small percentage of gun owners actually reload, but it would be nice to have the components available, you know, like they used to be. It feels like reloading may quickly become a thing of the past. What's your opinion? (laughs) Boy, I can commiserate there, Michael, but I do not think hand-loading is going by the way of the dodo here. Think about this. If stuff keeps getting worse and ammo supplies become less and less available, hand-loaders are essentially going back as far as you can to do it yourself. I mean, self-sufficiency, what it is all about. Obviously, someone has to make the basic materials that we can't find right now, but that can be done a lot easier than waiting around, depending on a manufacturer, to actually crank out the ammunition. So, for example, you can lead cast your own bullets. You can even put gilding metal or copper jackets around bullets or make your own bullets out of all copper. I mean, if a manufacturer can make this stuff, a backyard machinist can make it too. I think the biggest problem would be primers. We are not real good at making that. But think back way back to the black powder days and how self-sufficient our pioneers and our forefathers were. They knew the recipe for making black powder, and they would actually get the raw ingredients from nature and make that black powder. And then they would, of course, make their own barrels and even rifle them with primitive equipment. The human animal is endlessly innovative, and we can come up with what we need. And I think hand loaders are going to be able to continue making ammunition long into the future. Uh, It would be nice if some primer manufacturers really cranked out the primers for us. And of course, there's so much brass lying around that We should be able to keep enough brass for a long, long time. And you can modify different brass cartridges into other ones like the 30-out six you can make into just about, oh man, auto, 270s and 25-out sixes and 280s and shorten them down to make a 308 and a 260 and even a 6.5 Creedmoor if you had to. So we are going to have it, but it won't be as convenient. But in the long run, I really don't think it's going to become that problematic. I think we're going to get our supply lines back up and running fairly soon. I think we do have to be a little bit concerned about overreaching governments that are trying to shut this stuff down. That just seems to be uh, one of the, the current diseases going around. You know, there's always been governments that have tried to disarm their citizenry. And that's one of the great things about good old U.S. of A, where we have a Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, and it's just basically the right to self-protection. Um, in any form, whether it's uh, a bladed instrument or a blunt instrument or a firearm. So uh, we just have to stick it out and do our best to maintain our rights. And I think we're going to get our reloading gear back online. Sure hope so. All right, here is a uh, question from Brady. Brady asks, uh, I've read that Melvin Forbes builds his rifles on a true center line. Could you clarify what exactly that means? Well, true center line, as I understand it in rifle making, simply means that the center of the bore, the barrel, is lined up perfectly with the center of the receiver in which the bolt is lined up perfectly with the center and the firing pin is lined up perfectly in center with the bolt. So everything is trying to be perfectly concentric with the circle, the barrel and the bullet and everything, but also right down the middle of the bore. You don't want to be canted off to a tiny degree with any of that stuff. That gives you your maximum potential for finest accuracy. So I'm sure that's what Melvin's talking about. And what Melvin does is pretty much what what all persnickety gun builders do. Rather than just slapdash, manufacture, using machinery, a rifle, good enough. And, you know, some of them still do that. They have always done that when you're mass producing things whereas the custom gun makers will take the time to really fine-tune the tolerances and make sure everything is perfectly eccentric and right down the middle, straight line. So that's essentially what we're talking about there. So I hope that answered your question, Brady. I may not be exactly right with my answer, and once again, I always invite you folks out there to straighten me out if I'm not. But boy, true center line, that suggests to me that they're just trying to keep everything right down the middle of the bore. All right, this is from Eric, and Eric asks, I'm seeing a little more ammo hitting the shelves, but I noticed that Remington came out with a core lock tipped bullet. Is the core-locked bullet that Remington is known for with the polymer tip to help with the BC? I have a 30 at 6 that shoots 165-grain ammunition, the best. Keeping shots at reasonable distance, under 350 yards, uh, would this ammunition be okay for elk? All right. So you've really got several questions wrapped up in this. Essentially, what is the core lock bullet? The core lock bullet is Remington's answer to the question of how do you keep the gilding metal jacket tied to the lead core? So you've got a lead core bullet, thin gilding metal jacket around the outside, and the two tend to separate on impact. So the jacket stays in one place and the lead goes in another and, the lead usually breaks up into more than one piece and sometimes into fine little particles of which there can be dozens, if not hundreds. So they're trying to tie everything together. And the way they do it is with a cannelure that little jaggedy edged ring around the bullet that is squeezing part of the jacket into the lead to help hold it together. It does a minimal job of that because of the high energy. You can imagine when that bullet lands, all that energy in the bullet, 2,000 to 3,000 foot-pounds of energy, things are going to break apart, especially if you hit bone. So what Remington does with the core-locked ultra bullet, you might want to watch for that name on your ammunition, is I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, they bond the two almost like welding the gilding metal jacket to the lead. And they use heat to do that, obviously. And then they do not not break apart. They might smear, the big pieces might break, but the jacket should stick with the lead core. And of course, all of that is designed to maintain mass in that bullet so that its momentum can continue driving deep. That's what you want on a bigger animal like an elk, good momentum. Now, there's another way to get it with, uh, thirty out six or any other cartridge really, that is to use a heavier bullet because the heavier bullet in any given caliber will be longer, and the longer bullet means that more of its mass is behind the mushroomed nose to continue driving it. And there's your maintain maintaining your momentum, and I think that's what you are looking for. So the the base question of is a hundred and sixty five grain bullet enough to take elk? in a 30-odd-6, definitely, if it's the right kind of bullet. In other words, what we're talking about is the bullet going to stay in one piece and maintain its momentum. Now, you can use a bullet that tends to break apart, slip it behind the shoulder, tight behind the shoulder and right over the heart, and even if that bullet then breaks up or expands a little bit excessively for reduced penetration, it's going to be in the right spot you're going to slip through the ribs or even break a rib and easily get into the heart and lungs. And that's where most of your hemorrhaging is going to happen. So that's essentially what you're trying to do. The problem comes in if you don't quite make that shot and you smack right on the massive muscles and shoulder bones, then that bullet might have a little bit of trouble and it might break up. And this is why controlled expansion bullets were created, starting in 1948 with the Nosler Partition a bullet that had a wall between the nose lead and the shank lead. And that, even though you would lose the nose lead, you would keep enough lead in the shank to maintain momentum. So then all sorts of other controlled expansion bullets came along. But the whole idea is basically the same. Maintain as much mass in that bullet as you can. Don't let it break up into little pieces and then not penetrate deeply enough. So I would say you could get by, I'm sure, Plenty of elk have been killed with 30 at six using 165 grain bullet, and this very one, the core bullet. But you do risk that bullet coming apart. So I would recommend you go with 180 grain version. But if your rifle really prefers the 165, you might want to look for either the core locked ultra or some other bonded bullet. And there are a lot of bonded bullets out there. Or you can check out the new coppers because the copper bullets are not going to break into a lot of little pieces, they really penetrate deeply, even the ones that are designed to shed their petals, like the hammer bullet. So you might want to look into those too. If they shoot well in your rifle, boy, they really work well on elk, especially with the lighter weight bullets, because since they don't lose any weight, they keep it all to maintain their penetration. All right. Good question, Eric. Or actually several questions. Now, this is from Tyler. I'm a young, aspiring gun writer. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Bad idea, Tyler. (laughs) And I'm an avid outdoorsman. Well, that's good. Do you have any tips for a beginner looking to make a career out of what we love to do? Thanks for your videos and articles. I really appreciate the knowledge and experience you share. Well, thank you, Tyler. And I enjoy sharing it, too. And I don't mind sharing a little bit about being what I am, an outdoor writer. Um, Some people say I'm a gun writer because I write about guns and ammo and ballistics and all the rest of it. But of course, as an outdoorsman, as you are, you're going to want to write about probably hunting and camping and all sorts of outdoor adventures. I've written about, you name it, from fishing and bow hunting to birding and flower identification. Anything that has to do with the outdoor adventures that we all love. So you've got really a wide field to cover. The trick is, how are you going to make money doing it? Well, in, in my day when I got started, it was pretty simple. You wrote for the Hunting and Fishing magazines, like Sports of Field and Outdoor Life and Field and Stream, and later many more, Peterson's Hunting Magazine, Sporting Classics Magazine, Gray Sporting Journal. I mean, there were all kinds of them, and those are dwindling. They're really starting to go away because we're converting everything to this. <laughs> everything is digital now and it's online. Well, a lot of these magazines have gone to online. So they're still looking for content. In fact, I think they are needing more content now than they did back in the days of pure magazine writing. Because back then, there was a lot of effort required to put out a magazine. So they had good information in it, but of a limited quantity. You couldn't print the Encyclopedia Britannica every time you wanted to crank one out. But with the internet, you can put a lot of material out quickly. And So many of us have gotten to the point where we expect to find the answer by Googling it, that all of these competing magazines and online sites need to crank out a lot of information so that they get the hits. When someone searches for a particular topic, they want to have it on their site. So they are looking for writers to crank out almost daily content. And a lot of them will will put out essentially a daily magazine. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you have to have a lot of people putting out a lot of information. Now, some of it's not exactly what you would call literature. (laughs) It's not really all that even great of, of writing, and some of it is highly questionable even in its content. So if you know your stuff, can provide good content, and have good photos to go with it, you might do pretty darn well selling to a lot of these online websites. I would recommend you check into the bunch of them. I'm sure as a young person, you know a lot more of them than I do. But websites, uh, company brands uh, are putting out their own website magazines, if you will. So there's a lot of opportunities to sell material there. Then, of course, you can always go into the video end of it and the podcast. It seems like everyone in this dog, even this old dog, is doing a podcast these days. Um, I don't know if anybody's making any money at it. I sure can't attest to making any, but it's kind of fun. And, you know, if you get to be Joe Rogan, I think you'll make a buck or two. <laughs> so maybe you could shoot for that. But also consider doing some videos. I've got the YouTube Ron Spoomer Outdoors channel, on which I cover guns and ammo and scopes and all the things that you would expect in a detailed magazine article. I try to do those as videos in which I can show things, display different cartridges and bullets and whatnot. And that can be fairly successful as well. So I think you do still have a lot of good opportunities, even though the old timers like me complain about the loss of the magazines. You know, it's really kind of sad to see them go by the wayside because the cool thing about a magazine was you could pick one up that was five years old, 10 years old, 50 years old. It was there. As long as you didn't have a flood or a fire, it was always there. And with the Internet, it should be there, but a lot of things tend to come and go on there, even though it's supposed to be evergreen content. And it's a little more challenging, I think, to find it or to be inspired to find it, because when you look at a computer, it's blank. When you look at the cover of a magazine, you go, ooh, look at the size of the elk on that thing, and you open it up. And you can also leave it in the outhouse and hunting camp. (laughs) You don't leave too many laptops in the outhouse at a hunting camp for a quick read. (laughs) Anyway, I'm getting off topic here. Tyler, I think the answer is you probably could make it. If you can write well and you really know your stuff and you're also a good videographer and or photographer, there's plenty of opportunities out there. There's always a way. So good luck to you. I hope your career takes off. And if you want any more information, write me again. I'll be happy to visit with you about it and help you out. Okay, this is Steve. And Steve asks, what experience do you have with eastern whitetail hunting? Any cartridge recommendations? Ranges are much shorter than in western hunting. Yeah, and I think that's your main point. I have hunted in quite a few eastern states for whitetail. And... I never enjoy it quite as much as the West for, I think, pretty obvious reasons. I've always been an open country character. I was born in South Dakota, wide open spaces. We're used to seeing things at a distance. And then the challenge, of course, is getting close. Once you stick me into a forest, I feel a little bit claustrophobic. Everything's a little bit too tight and too close. And I'm always wondering what's beyond that tree trunk. (laughs) So I don't get real excited about hunting in heavy cover. But over the years, I have forced myself to learn how to do it. And I did get to the point where I really enjoyed the challenge. And I think I got pretty good at it. And what I did was rather than sitting in trees, and I've done plenty of that, but I like to hunt on the ground and move. It keeps me more occupied, my brain as well as my eyes and ears. And I like the challenge of sneaking up on things. So what I started doing hunting into thick brush was glassing and spotting my deer before they spotted me, which a lot of people think is kind of crazy. But if you use a binocular in the woods, it really works. You can see 100 yards, 200 yards, a lot further than you would think you could just using your naked eyes. So I uh, did that, spotted my deer, eased into position and took my shots. But none of that really matters on what you're talking about, which is probably which cartridge and bullet should you use. Yes, I think you are correct in assuming that you're probably not going to get a lot of shots past 100 yards in heavy forests or woodlots in the east. But I think you do need to consider what happens when you get to an opening. Could be a farm field, could be right-of-way um, power line. Here hear a lot of guys looking down those. And it could even be ridge to ridge. Like in Pennsylvania, you got all these different ridges and valleys and things. Quite often you'll come to an old burn or a logged area where you get got a pretty long view and you might see a deer quite a ways out there. My answer has always been to choose a cartridge that will work in both situations. 30-30 is relatively short range, extremely popular for woods hunting because it's about a 150 yard cartridge. Good shooter can stretch that out to 200. But most guys are going to say, I've never even had a shot at a deer more than 100 yards away. So 30-30 is all I need. But what happens when you're walking in the woods with that 3030 30 and you come onto one of those openings and there's your deer at 300 yards? You don't have a chance. But if you were shooting a 308 Winchester or a 7mm 08 or a .30-06 or any of our bottleneck cartridges that can easily reach to 300 yards and you practiced and knew how to shoot well to that distance, you've got the ability to take that shot. So if there are any farm fields out there that might be pretty wide and the deer are going to be on the other side of them or way out in the middle and that sort of thing, you might want to consider getting a cartridge that'll shoot a bullet that will get to 300 yards with minimal drop. And what I mean by that is you should be able to zero that rifle to hit no higher than three inches at any distance, and that'll usually happen at somewhere between 150 to 180 yards. And then that bullet should stay inside of six inches or so out to about 300 yards it'll drop in other words a total of four to six inches at 300 yards that pretty much says on a deer's chest you can hold dead center and either hit a little bit high right in the middle or a little bit low catch the lungs every time and or the heart makes it pretty easy and you don't need a range finder it's called a maximum point blank range and if you want to really learn about it Check out ronspomeroutdoors.com, my website, and I've got a few articles or blogs in there that explain how to set up any cartridge for your maximum reach, your maximum point-blank range. So that's what I would recommend. Use a good spire point bullet that's got a fairly high BC so you can shoot long and flat and reach out there. And even if you never take a shot more than 100 yards away, you are still got yourself a great deer rifle if it's a .30-06 or something roughly equivalent. That'd be my recommendation. How about a lone crapshooter's question? And we're not uh, playing with dice here. (laughs) Well, maybe we are. Let's roll the dice and see what he's got. What grain do you like best for the 270 Winchester? Oats. No. Wheat. Barley? Oh, God. I'm sorry, guys. I just can't help it. (laughs) What grain, meaning weight, bullet, do I like best for the 270 Winchester? You know... I kind of settled on 140 grain many years ago. That one is not all that common because most people think 130 grain, 270 Winchester. Ah, 150 grain if you're going after elk. Neither one of those are bad choices. Those are excellent. But if you're going, which one should I pick? Well, the 140 fits right between the two. And it kind of gives you the best of both worlds. So you're going to push it a little faster than you could a 150. You've got a little more energy in it because of the additional mass than you would have in the 130. It's going to shoot a little bit flatter than the 150, uh, carry more energy than the 130, deflect in the wind a little less and potentially even both of them. Um, if you get a boat tail, fairly long nose, well-proportioned bullet with a high BC number, man, you can really max it out with that 140. So if you... Don't find many 140s, and they're not all that commonly loaded compared to the 130s and the 150s. I would go with the 130 for the lighter animals, deer, pronghorn, probably sheep, if you get so lucky as to get a sheep tag. Um, But if you do want to hunt elk, with the right bullet in the 130, um, you can do just fine. Um, Some of the copper bullets, like the Barnes Xs and the hammers and the cutting edge and all these, they do great in 130 grains. You really don't need to go heavier than that. But in a traditional bullet with a lead core, I would go with the 150 and get something bonded and or partitioned A-frames, anything like that. Uh, You just want to think about having more mass, more energy in that bullet for the deeper penetration on the bigger animals. So I would go 150 for elk, moose, the bears, but, boy, with the right copper bullet, that's going to retain all of its weight. You could probably do just as well with the 130, and you shoot it a little faster. That always makes up for a little bit of weight loss. Really, though, with a 270, you can't go wrong. As long as you've got a good bullet that doesn't break apart, you'll do just fine. All right, good question there, Mr. Crapshooter. <laughs> Here is Garrett or Jarrett. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. G-E-R-R-I-T. And Garrett's question is... How do the cartridges used on North American game translate to African game? Pretty much the same way. I see a ton of information about the best cartridges for elk and moose and other common American species. But what about the antelope in South Africa? I'd love to hear your cartridge recommendations for South African game. All right. So we're talking about a group we usually call plains game. And that means pretty much anything but hippo and buffalo and rhino and elephant and lion and such. So you're going to be hunting all of the antelopes. Now, Africa, southern Africa, does not have native deer. A deer is a northern hemisphere animal pretty much. Uh, you get some in South America. But really, the, the northern fringe of Africa had a couple of deer. But they were introduced to southern Africa. So there are a few deer there. But mostly you're talking about antelope. And they all have horns. So kudu, gimsbuck or oryx. Niala, bushbuck, dick, dick, dikers, impala, springbuck—all of those crazy horn animals with the twists and the spirals and such. Man, those are the plains game species hunted in Africa. The problem with picking a cartridge is they vary in weight from ten-pound dick, dick to two thousand-pound eland holy mackerel that makes the difference between let's say a coos deer and a moose fairly minimal <laughs> so that brings up that question what do you use for a cartridge well i hear from a lot of africans and i've hunted there many times and they will say you know you americans get all worked up about a 458 this or a 500 that and all we use is out 6 or a 303 British, pretty much the common deer and elk cartridges we would use over here. work just fine over there. In fact, you might not believe this, but in the last few years that I've gone over, a lot of the locals are shooting a 6.5 Creedmoor at this stuff. And one PH I hunted with told me that he got his 8-year-old son out for his first Oryx. He took him with a 223, And an Oryx is pretty good-sized animal. I have one hanging on the wall right over there, and they're probably weighing 450 to 500 pounds, maybe. I won't swear to that number, but they're known to be really tough. They're a desert animal that can go without water for a long time, and they seem to really take a shot and just keep on going. Now, we've taken them with 7 millimeter weight, 308, 300 Magnums, 7 Rem Mags, just all sorts of things. With a good shot, right bullet in the right place, not a problem. But a 2:23, man, that's pretty minimal. But once again, if you get the bullet behind the shoulder into the lungs and the heart, really it's all it takes. But I would not recommend anyone go 223 Remington hunting in Africa. You, even if you're a local, don't take chances. You know, Use something substantial. So really it's not so much the cartridge that you're using um, as it is the bullet and where you place it. Now, you will have advantages with cartridges that shoot far and flat and fast because they'll go a little bit farther and they can make up for any mistakes you make in estimating range. If you're using a laser rangefinder, you can get the specific distance, obviously, and put your bullet exactly where it belongs. But many times when we're hunting, an opportunity pops up in which we do not have time to engage that laser rangefinder. And that is a, a wonderful reason to have a flat shooting rifle, like a seven rem mag or 300 wind mag. And both of those, I would highly recommend or anything comparable. There's several 300 mags and seven mags that are right in that ballpark. Some of them are even faster and flatter shooting, but anytime you've got that speed and flatness, and then you match it up with a high BC bullet, it just minimizes any chances for screwing things up. There's a little more fudge factor involved. It makes it a little easier to reach out and put that bullet where you need it to be. And Then it's just up to the bullet once it gets there. So you might want to be a little bit leery of the cup and core bullets that can break up, come up against a kudu or an eland, and you don't want your bullet to break up. You want it to penetrate deeply, especially if you have to take a quartering away shot or something, so your angle's not exactly perfect. Um. So yeah, that, that's the recommendation I would have with the heavier animals. If you're expecting those, regardless what cartridge you're shooting, you probably want to go to the heavier bullets. Um, you're just going to your chances to maintain penetration are always greater with a heavier bullet because you have more of the weight in the shank to continue driving forward once that nose is expanded. Um, then there's a little more energy in the heavier bullets pushed to maximum. Uh, velocity as well. So I think if you start off thinking 30 six and then maybe a little more or a little less, you're right in the ballpark. A lot of guys will go with a 270 in the right bullet. And as I mentioned, now they're even using the 6.5. uh And the 303 British has been in a lot of countries over there, like South Africa, and pretty su- successfully used for decades and decades. So 308 Winchester is pretty darn popular as well. So the most important thing is to have a rifle that you are familiar with, you're comfortable with, you shoot it well, you trust it, then just use the right bullet and you're in business. So yeah, Africa is a great place to hunt. South Africa is relatively inexpensive. So I would recommend looking into it and heading on over there if you get a chance because it is quite an adventure. Okay, that looks like the end of the questions today, folks. So I want to thank all of you for sending in your questions. I hope I answered them properly. Um, If I got anything wrong, I'm trusting you guys to straighten me out. So write in and let me know what I got wrong, because what we want to do here is provide the right information to folks. And uh, I'm more than willing to admit I don't know at all. (laughs) That's pretty easy. So this is Ron Spomer. I invite you to uh, watch our channels on YouTube, Ron Spomer Outdoors, and check out our website, ronspomeroutdoors.com. And as always, I want to thank our patrons for supporting us on Patreon. I am supposed to tell you what the benefits are, but we're out of time right now. But if you jump on our channel, go to Patreon, Ron Spomer Outdoors, um, and it will list the categories that you can join at and the benefits that you get. Um, one of which is not hanging out with me because he wouldn't want to be doing that. <laughs> hey, this is Ron Spomer. Thanks, guys. Hunt on us and shoot straight.